Hello, welcome to another edition of The Detour. Well, we're now actually live for the first time in a while because we've done a really great interview with Alex Stedia. Um, he's the first North American to wear the yellow jersey. And we're also joined by Phil Anderson, Ify. It was a sensational interview. Yeah, it was great to have them on board. And I, I still remember, I'd only been retired about five years in, and, and I remember young Alex uh, getting that yellow jersey it was a wonderful uh moment in a, in a in a brilliant tour de france because it was a famous tour de france that year where where hino and le monde had uh, the teammates had this uh, real duel it was never just given uh, so it was an amazing event now unpacking the giro uh last night uh aussie simon clark at one point there when he was in the break we thought here we go but unfortunately he finished third which is still a great effort um what were your takeaways from the stage mate yeah, it was a tough day. It was uh, uh, the, the warm weather definitely was left down south because it was a cold and tough road stage, you know, plenty of climbing. Uh, break got well clear, got given a fair bit of latitude, and so it was always going to be uh, out of them. And then when the crunch came, there was only the three of them left. There was, uh, uh, Jonathan uh, Naive, I can't even say his name properly, but for Ecuadorian, young Ecuadorian, riding for, for, for uh, the Ineos Grenadiers. He was very strong, along with uh, Padin, the Ukrainian, riding for Bahrain at Merida. And Simon looked like he was going to match it with him for a while, but he cracked on one of the climbs. He ended up losing a few minutes, but hung on to it for, for a very strong third place. But the other two, I didn't know who was going to uh, be the strongest, but then uh, the Ukrainian unfortunately punctured. And even though he only lost about 30 seconds, but on the wheel changed and he was trying to close, he just couldn't get there. He got to within nine seconds, actually. And then he just started to falter and uh, and uh, the young Ecuadorian powered away to take the stage. And another good one for Ineos. They've well, lost the overall chance, but they, they keep shining for the individuals. And I think uh, then we're, tonight we've got another sprinter stage and then tomorrow we're at the time trial. We'll probably see Ghana back uh, in the, uh, uh, the winner's position, I reckon, in the time trial. Now, the big talking point, uh, if you go to Cycling News or any of the media outlets, is there's a bit of pressure on now for the Giro. We've spoken about it a lot on this show. You know, how long can they continue the race for, given that the cycling bubble, it's compromised. And Jonathan Vorders has come out and said that EF wrote to the UCI. They expressed their concerns, particularly around that cycling bubble. Uh, do you think it's going to go past the next rest day? It's interesting. I, I thought it was a very well-constructed letter. He sent it to the UCI and to the organisers and to each of the teams. Pretty well thought out, and he was just putting this as an op option. I, what will pan out is if there's any more corona positives, then I don't think the race will go ahead. It will all depend over the next couple of days of the testing and the results. We've got uh, – I think I think what he's saying is would be good. If, you, if, the, if, if the sport itself said, you know what – this is the situation. Let's go to Sunday, which means we get the time trial, another big mountain stage. They can all know what's going to happen and have a definitive uh, race to, through to Sunday. Okay, it's a week short, but uh, it's not a bad idea. But if they get, don't get any more positives in the next two or three days after that rest day, then the race will continue. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, particularly over the next couple of days. Now, before we go to this interview, Johnny, Johnny, I think we should get the sponsors plugs in. Let's do them early this time. So <laughs> do your finest. 
Well, it's so easy for me to do the wonderful Mitchelton Winery, Mitchelton Hotel, because, you know, I've got a little cabin up there at the lake and I, and I spend a bit of time in this place and I absolutely love it. It is just glorious. As you see that photo probably doesn't even do true justice to the beauty of that area. Do you want and me to become... change the photo, John? Are you not happy with the no, photo? No, I love the photo. Uh, and we could probably add a couple of extra ones in the future, mm. showing some of the other great uh, things because the wedding's up there. You can have your wedding out on this beautiful area that overlooks the Goulburn River and, and then wander into the, to the wonderful uncovered areas for the for the rest of it and it's become the thing the place to go for weddings well but, you're right um, why don't why haven't i got more photos i mean that's just lazy i should have when you talk about the cellar and all that we should be showing it you're right okay i'm glad you put a bit of onus back on yourself that's good i'll put so my hand up yeah yeah you've got a few you've got a yeah. few uh, well, but, uh, <laughs> I couldn't find my notes. <laughs> anyway, I've oh, caught you. I've caught you. You've been reading notes the whole time. Yeah, of course I have. Of course yeah. I have. But, but oh, it comes from the heart. I know my own uh, inadequacies, but it's experienced the history, the beauty, and the serenity of the, of the Goulburn Valley. And the beautiful Muse restaurant. Explore the seasonal menu with wines perfectly paired. We've mentioned about it's become the the, the uh, go-to place for for, for for weddings, and also that iconic tower there, where you can get up there in the lift and uh, look out over the whole area. The day spa, where you can quiet the mind, unwind the body, rediscover your balance in a setting of peace and harmony. It sounds wonderful. It's just a beautiful place to go, and it's so beautifully red too. Uh, you're doing a great job, John. All right, here's a quick uh, word from our mates at Bike Exchange. Look at this bike. You think it's just a bike, right? But it's not. <clears throat> it's a bike. 374 people are looking at. This guy, this girl, them, all looking at it. People from here, there, and wherever this is. People that are looking for a bike. Or just a piece of it. Amateurs. Semi-amateurs. And pro-amateurs. This guy wants this bike, but with this crank. And these bars. This could be the perfect match. But not this one. This girl has a bike to sell. And thousands of people might purchase it. Eyes on bikes help grow small businesses. His, hers, yours. And the latest data and insights help those businesses keep moving. We are the world's number one bike marketplace with over 500,000 products and 900 brands where buyers and sellers are brought together in a place where a bike is never just a bike. Bike Exchange, where the world buys, sells, learns and rides. Never gets old that ad, EP. No, it's wonderful. Uh, now it's time for our feature interview of the show with Canadian Alex Stadia and we're also joined by the great Skippy Phil Anderson. Well, Ify, we're joined by more cycling royalty, uh, particularly from Canada, or as Phil Liggett likes to say, North America. Alex Steeder, welcome to the detour, mate. How are you? Um, pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, um, it, uh, yeah. I, I only know you guys by watching the detour. I haven't met you guys personally, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you you are the most tech savvy guest we've ever had on this show. You've got a proper mic. You've got the proper Wi-Fi. You've got a great yeah, yeah. camera set up. 
you know how to do framing. I'm really looking forward to this chat, particularly from a tech perspective, mate. Yeah, and that includes Dan and I. You're the most tech savvy, including us, because, uh, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. I, um, I, I work in the bike in, uh, sorry, I've, I've worked in the bike industry, but um, I also uh, work now in the IT industry in, in, in uh, IT business development. So kind of got to be familiar with all the goings on inside that world. So, Alex, you're obviously known as the first North American to ever wear the yellow jersey at the Tour de France. Uh, now, we had a look at some videos online. There's a sensational clip that people have to go out and have a look at that Rafa did. Um, yeah. And you're a very, very good storyteller, mate. Has that always been the case or has that come with age? Yeah, I think it comes with age and experience. You know, I, I, I certainly don't mind uh, a good yarn and, a, you know, a, a couple stubbies and, you uh, you know, to tell a few stories, that's for sure. But uh, and I think, you know, as, as you get older and uh, you, you, you kind of get the, you, you, you gather all these different, different experiences. And um, I certainly do love to share, you know, the, 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 the past and especially the cycling past that I've had over the last 45 years. <laughs> just got to uh, reiterate uh, 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 what Dan said. People have to look at that Rafa clip because it's beautifully done and it's a lovely story and you talk about where you live and all of that. But I watched it and I remember, well, uh, you, you getting that yellow jersey. I'd only been retired four or five years. I'm good mates with Phil. Of course, I was following his career closely. And I, I watched it the other day when I knew you were going to come on and it was just – uh, brought all that back to me and I had the hair standing up in the back of my neck and the fact of how little you knew about the tour and the, and the enormity yeah. of it and uh, that just shone out. I just loved that whole story. Yeah, exactly. We were we were babes in the woods. You know, we re truly were. We, 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 we thought we had it all figured out, of course. We were, you know, all in our mid-20s. I was 25, first year pro, uh, and it was just a bit, you know, we, we thought, oh yeah, this is it. We're at the Tour de France. We're great. We're awesome. But in reality, you know, we had, we knew nothing, absolutely nothing. No one on the team had ever ridden the Tour de France, uh, had ever, well, I think we, yeah, uh, Mike Neal, our director had raced in the Tour of Italy, uh, when he was a pro in the seventies, um, hadn't raced in France at all. And Jacques Boyer hadn't joined our team yet. So we were, yeah, we were just sort of feeling our way and trying to figure it out as we went. Well, finally, I've got the other connection. I, uh, Mike Neal, I knew Mike very well. We rode the Olympics together, 72, and oh, we goodness. rode a tour, tour of Mexico in 1973, and Clyde Sefton, who uh, silver in Munich Olympics, Clyde, Mike Neal, Donnie Allen and myself were all out of the Tour of Mexico for heat exhaustion or whatever, high altitude, who knows. Uh, but we we went by train, bus, hitchhiked, whatever, from the other end of Mexico, got to Mexico City and watched Eddie Merckx break the air record. You guys were there? We were there. Mike Mike was with There was Mike, Donnie Allen, Clyde Sefton and myself. Oh we my watched God. Eddie break the air record. Yep. Yeah, now, what fantastic. you'll find on this show, Alex, is it'll slowly shift back to John, and it's all more about his stories and his experiences. So you, you just got to okay. roll with it. So I, I have to now, clear something up. So after the 82 Commonwealth Games in 1982, okay, and we're in Brisbane, and we were supposed to race a stage race 
after the Commonwealth Games, somewhere Queensland, New South Wales. Yeah. And, Commonwealth Classic. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And the the the, the Canadian track, uh, you know, to, pursuit team that I was on, we just we decided to bail and we went up to Noosa instead. We didn't tell <laughs> we didn't tell anyone. And I want to know if that was you. Were you in running that race, or who? Do you know who was running that race? No, I probably wouldn't be talking to you now if I was. No, I do. <laughs> a good mate of mine, Phil Bates, uh, uh, ran right, the Commonwealth Back right. for a lot, a lot of years. Yeah, yeah. Right. He was the first person to bring Phil Liggett out to Australia. He came, dragged him out to do commentary on his events, and I did the same for my yeah. events later on. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Alex, my knowledge of cycling pre-sort of Miguel Indre days is really rusty, but going on <laughs> what John always tells me, ah, oh, it was harder, you know, tougher conditions. Ah. We were just tough as nails. <laughs> was, was, it, was it a lot different to what you see, obviously, in the peloton now, particularly as a young Canadian, you head over to Europe, I think in like 81 or whatever. How did you find that transition? Well, I, I think for a number of reasons, we we had it we had it tough. I mean, number one, the culture. We didn't have a condo in Girona waiting for us. Mm. Okay, so uh, a team car picked us up at the airport. Fair enough, um, and uh, they brought us to a hotel that was usually where we were staying with Seven Eleven. It was bare bones. Sometimes there were mirrors on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm serious yeah okay uh sometimes we stayed in a in like an old folks home where we you know we lined up for dinner uh, you know at, at the trough with i mean people who could barely walk they were in their 80s and we were there because it was cheap yeah because yeah. Noel Dionker had it sorted out for us. So the culture was, was I mean, no one spoke English, you know, in wherever we went, in the shops, uh, you, know, you know, anywhere you went. But in the Peloton, it was even harder. No one spoke English. So I learned to speak a single sentence in five different languages. Fortunately, I grew up speaking French in school and here in Canada. So French was my main second language, but then uh, my family history is German. So I knew some German and then I picked up some Italian uh, and then uh, a bit of Spanish. And, you know, every sentence has like four or five different languages in it. And I remember speaking with Acacio da Silva and, you know, he was so funny, such a great guy, but he had zero English, zero. But I got along with him. I chatted with him in the, in the race because I could speak these different languages in kind of, you know, <laughs> semi-confused state. <laughs> now, now, before we bring on a special guest, I want to show a snippet of that Rafa clip, uh, which is when you're talking about the day you took the yellow jersey. There's a break coming. you got to stay away so the break doesn't catch you before then. And so Phil Anderson was in the break, came up. I'd never spoken to Phil Anderson before because, you know, he's an Australian guy on this Panasonic team. They were the gods. And he comes up, touches me, and says, hey, you're in the jersey, mate. Come on. Like, you know, he understood the game and knew. Now, that, so I'll have to say, that was a terrible Aussie accent, mate. <laughs> you're in the jersey, mate. <laughs> need to work on that. But I, we've got, practicing, we've got Phil. practicing my Aussie. Oh, there he is. <laughs> we've got Phil. Hey, Alex, how's it going, mate? You, you haven't changed a bit. You look exactly the same. Except we all wear glasses now. Bloody hell, mate. So, Phil, what do you remember about that day that Alex took the yellow jersey back in 86? Yeah, it was early on. I think it was 
stage one. I don't know if we had a prologue that year, but it was um, early on, and uh, yeah, uh, you went you went early, and and I think I was in the counter attack, and uh, yeah, we, we um, caught you in the closing kilometres, but yeah, you grabbed some uh, valuable um, bonification seconds up the road, winning some sprints because you were up there alone. And uh, yeah, I mean, I congratulated you went past, but uh, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, stays in the tour and everybody else's. Um, what does Lance say? Balls deep. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a bit of a pact among the riders, like uh, English speakers? Come on, we've got to work together. You know, we've got to look after these guys. Oh, I think uh, like Alex just. Um, alluded to there are very few english-speaking riders in the peloton uh, you know i was there a few years before and uh you know there's a few few riders like uh sean kelly but you couldn't really sit, say he spoke english um you know if you try and listen to him on, on, on euro sport uh you know it's a real struggle but um but yeah it was somebody to talk with in the bunch and i oh, look you know, we all had our uh, duties to do for our teams uh, and strategies, but, I mean, all things being equal, if we didn't have to chase, we wouldn't have chased down um, each other. But, you know, we're all there for a job and, and um, you know, you all be very professional about it. And, um, yeah, the same end, we try and look after each other. I, I, what I really enjoyed uh, watching that Rafa uh, uh, piece, as I mentioned to you, Alex, was your honesty and how little you knew about pro cycling and what you're really in for, which is just the same as Phil only you know four or five years earlier in 81 when he jumped into his first tour and got a yellow jersey and also didn't know what it meant, how big it was, and really what he was in for. It was such a similar story, actually. Yeah, we were really, you know, we, we did, of course, there was no internet uh, and we were just reading, you know, cycling magazines that we could get a hold of uh, here in Canada that were few and far between. Uh, there was a, a British coach named Baz Lysett, Barry Lysett, who uh, was instrumental as uh, in my development as a junior on the track in um in, in Vancouver, where I grew up, we uh, we had the uh, the wooden track that was built for the 54 Empire Games. I don't know, John, if you were at that. Not quite, mate. I'm not that much. Bloody, <laughs> okay. No. All right. Anyway, I don't know. He has an age well. He has an age well. And uh, you know, so so yeah, that that British coach was you know Barry was or Baz was just uh, you know amazing for us. He he had a really interesting connection with Belgium in that he would go to Europe every winter and, and work the sixth day as a, as a soigneur. And his main guy that he worked for was Willie DeBosher. <laughs> Willie the Joker. The Joker, the clown. <laughs> yeah. And so, so there was a Belgian connection. And then Ron Heyman was my mentor, and he was a pro. Uh, he had raced pro, uh, gone over to Belgium to race pro in 78, 79-ish. Um, and would come home for the winter in Vancouver and train with us in the winter. Um, and then he, Ron recommended that I go to Belgium to, to, uh, to find out what bike racing was all about. And that was really my first introduction to learning about real bike racing. We, you know, we've been racing in the Pacific Northwest in, in uh, Vancouver and Seattle. But So I went to Ghent in 1981, and I was 20 years old, on my own, 
um, you know, I mean, I'm sure Phil can talk about this too with uh, ACBB and all, but I was literally there on my own. And Ron hooked me up with a friend named Luke Eisermans, who is in sort of the Belgian cycling mafia in Ghent and uh, got me a place to stay with Staff Bona. Oh, geez, you weren't in that like, terrible place. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, it was, it was actually wasn't in, in, in Ghent itself. It was outside the of Ghent. Butcher shop. And, well, but that was Warzy van Turlboom, had the, had the meat shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Across from Staff's store. But I was yeah. out in I was out in Drongen uh, by the water sport barn. Ah, yeah. Okay, but here's the Aussie. My first Aussie connection is that in that place I first met my first Australian friend. His name was Ricky Flood. Ah, oh, Rick Floody. Floody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Floody, yeah. Hey? Good, good man. Yeah. Good man, Ricky Flood. Yep. And his buddy that he's been racing six days with there in Ghent was Phil Brotherton. Peter, Peter Brotherton. Well, though, that's Phil. I think, wasn't it Phil was his son? Peter. P Peter, Bro Peter Brotherton. Well, Peter yeah. was his son. Okay. I got that yeah, mixed up. Yeah. Anyway, it was yeah, a Brotherton. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, uh, you, know, they're, they're, you know, here I am, you know, shacked up with this, with Ricky Flood in this stupid little, you know, uh, you know, it was literally a cold water flat. And I'd never heard of that before, but there was just cold water that you turn on in the tap. That was it, no hot water. And in the back was an outhouse, literally an outhouse in the backyard. Yeah. So given how big cycling is in Belgium, when you took the jersey, I mean, when Matt Heyman won Paribu Bay, his entire street shut down. I think they're still partying, and that was four years ago. But what did they do when you took the jersey? They would have just been ecstatic. Well, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I got to know a few people in, in Belgium just because I lived there for a few months. I didn't live there for a long time, just a few months. And then I came back to Canada. Um, it was a, you know, a short trip just to race Kermesse and, uh, just, just get a, get a feel for it. But, uh, I know, I, I know that, uh, there, you know, like, uh, like the, the folks that I got to know later, like the Dionkier brothers, uh, and Luke Iserman's stuff going to Warsi, they were they were just ecstatic. You know that they, they they remembered having me there and sort of looking after me, and you know it was that was pretty cool. Hey Phil, what was the perception of the Seven Eleven team back then? You were obviously riding in '86 for the big boys, the Panasonics. What was the Peloton's view of of the new upstarters? Uh, it was possibly unjust, but but. Um... You know, I think it's been documented, but we were all told to, to uh, beware of these newcomers, these blow-ins, and uh, give them plenty of room and, um, <laughs> you know, they're dangerous or whatever, you know. But, um, you know, I'd, I'd raced a little bit in America uh, the late 70s and, yeah, late, yeah the uh, late 70s. And, um, you know, they're just regular riders. They obviously just didn't have, have the experience which... Um, which we had had uh, racing in uh, in Europe, and you know, for any new team or even any new pro that comes over and starts riding the peloton, um, you know, there's always that sort of trepidation by the rest of the peloton to, to uh, watch out. Let's uh, watch out for these guys. Uh, make sure they don't tip us off, or uh, we're not sure if they're used to riding in such a big bunch, or uh, what to expect. And and Oh, rightfully so. I mean, um, Alex said, you know, he didn't follow the traditions. They didn't know what the traditions were other than reading in the magazine. And and we all know um, it's pretty limited what you can get out of a magazine or even um, these days on the internet. You know, being in a bunch is completely different than um, 
you know, being in a Strava group or, or uh, <laughs> you know, what do you, uh, what do you see on the, on the uh, television coverage? And did that change after you took the jersey? Did you feel that you, you got a little bit more respect? Uh, yeah, for me it did. Uh, yeah, like uh, I had guys like Henny Kuiper come up to me and, you know, congratulate me, you know, and uh, and just tell me that, you know, I, I you know, to prove I had to, uh, I'd won the jersey, I had to finish the Tour de France, you know, like, and so there were, and then, you know, we were, I do remember like we were coming around a turn and, and then one of the guys in the in the Gruppetto yelling, "Watch out, Alex! 23, 23. I'm like, "What? Okay, I'll put it in the twenty three. That was the lowest gear we had. And all of a sudden, we come around. And there's a steep ramp. You know, like, wow, someone's looking after me. This is wow, that was that was kind of cool. You know, it started to it, that start those sort of things started to happen. Yeah. Well, this is a question for both of you. Have you found that as times passed, you appreciate wearing the yellow jersey even more? No, absolutely, absolutely. It uh, it means so much, you know, now than you know than it did then. Um, and yeah, I've told my kids the story. You know, they're my kids are twenty six and twenty eight. But yeah, for sure, it's uh, it it means so so much. I, I really do treasure it now. And you know, I, I just interviewed uh, Swain Tuft, and you know, Swain, of course, Jonesy, and uh, you know, mm. I asked him to pull out his his uh, his pink jersey from the Giro. Well, he pulls it out of this bag and he holds it up and it's all wrinkled and the number's kind of crunched up. I'm like, Swaino, you got to put that in a frame. And he's like, ah, I don't know. I was like, don't worry. You will come, there will come a time when you will want to put that in a frame and post it up on your wall. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Amazing yeah. guys. Yeah, I, think, uh, <laughs> I think for me, it's the same. I mean, at the time, you don't realize the significance of it because, uh, you know, you wouldn't think you'd be, um, you know, 30, 40 years down the track, still talking about it. Um, but at the time, you're just, you know, focusing on your, uh, your the next stage, you know, trying to defend it, uh, you know, whether you'll get it back again or, you know, your teammates, what the plans are. You're not really dwelling on the, uh, you know, what you've achieved. And it possibly isn't until after, like like Alex said, after I retired, then you sort of look back and, and um, you know, take stock of what you've done during those um, those those years. And, uh, yeah, I think it would be the same now. I mean, there's riders who get the jersey every year. Uh, you know, there are the good time trialers, good prologue riders, uh, good time trialists. Um, you know, I got it uh, the next year as well, quite a few days. But, um, you know, that was it. It took me 10 years before I won a, another stage. So um, yeah, something you never never should take for granted. That's for sure. Yeah. Now, one thing I noticed, just changing topic a bit, Alex, is you were co-founder of the Tour of Alberta, um, and we, uh, Orica Greenwich, rode Tour of Alberta. I think in 2013, it was a sensational race because you know, like English speaking, and I remember that one of the stages. I think there was four corners for 160k. It was just dead <laughs> straight. But I want to ask you, how tough is it, particularly in this current environment, um, to be an event organiser? And it seems like the, the cycling structure as a whole might need a bit of a change moving forward. Yeah, I've watched some of your previous shows. Yeah, it, I mean, the industry uh, and, and the, the business model of professional cycling and is, is really broken. Um, it's, uh, we, we had to stop putting the race on here in Alberta. 
Uh, we just couldn't raise the, the funds to keep the race going. The government, the provincial government, our state government was interested, but they didn't want to foot the whole bill and they kept wanting us to bring on more corporate sponsorship. And then the, um, the oil price crash hit and our industry is really affected by oil here because we, you know, we, we take a lot of that out of the ground and, um, and that, that just killed us. And we, and it was just too, too hard to, to keep it going. There wasn't enough, uh, sort of, you know, various sponsors that we could bring on or even of course one big sponsor that, that wasn't even, wasn't even possible to, to keep it going here. And I was using the tour down under as our, as our business model, because I really liked what they were doing down there, what Michael Turter was doing. Um, and also, they lost the two one-day races with the COVID, um, Quebec and Alberta, uh, Montreal. How is the cycling scene in, in Canada at the moment? Well, I think it's it's sort of a hot spots here and there, and it's really about uh, sort of individuals with passion that are that are keeping it going and wherever wherever they happen to be. You know, here in Edmonton, we have five months of winter where there's snow on the ground. Um, you know, we have an outdoor track that was built for the 78 Commonwealth Games where Phil actually won the road race. Um, hopefully I'm not dating you there, Phil. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't, uh, wasn't the Empire game. But <laughs> you were just a baby, yeah, uh, in 78. But, um, yeah, so we have a really strong culture with the Juventus Cycling Club here in Edmonton. But it's, it's a group of people here in Edmonton that really care about the sport. Yeah, and there's a few folks in Calgary that do that. Uh, Vancouver has quite a few strong cycling clubs. Um, they've got the Grand Fondo Whistler, which has been going for over 10 years now, and they get over 5,000 people for each Fondo every year. Um, and then, you know, if you go east, well, Quebec is really strong with, with cycling. They have a very strong cycling culture, lots of good clubs. Um, and then the Toronto area as well. But, you know, other than that, it's it's hit and miss, you know. It's it's really tough, and it's easier now to find you know uh, cycling people because of the internet and social media. Um, but back in the day, back in the eighties, man, um, you pretty much knew everyone that raced bikes <laughs> across the country. I remember uh, in the mid nineties, uh, I took Jerry's uh, first uh, pro team, the Jayco cycling team, uh, away to race in the States. We raced the US Pro and uh, Tour of West Virginia, which was quite a big race then. Lance rode that. And then we went up to Quebec and rode those two tours up in Quebec, uh, Lux St. John and another one. Uh, they were fantastic races. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the Tour de Bosa has been going for 25 years. Uh, they, they've been just, uh, that's a, you know, a, a cat tour. Uh, level race and it's it's just fantastic for developing riders um and you know the, the two world cups you know are, are put on by um a guy that um you know has has a media company in quebec and it's it, you know he he produces the event himself so that it's in his benefit to put on the event because the, it creates content for his media network uh so you know it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy there so that's a great business model for him now, one thing we were talking about a fair bit the last couple of days is Mark Cavendish, and you know a lot of people have said, "Hey, it's time to hang up the boots, Mark." Um, how did you guys go towards the latter end of your career when you're sort of thinking, oh, "I think it could be time"? How did you know, Alex? Yeah, that was that was tricky. Definitely hard to make that make that call. Um, I was 31, so relatively young, 
but you know, you know, there's a, another Aussie named Danny Clark actually <laughs> had, had told me one day, Alex, I, you got to keep writing as long as you can. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I, I don't think I want to do still, that. Danny. Yeah, he's still racing though. He's never stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but so I've Did, always gone through life with my blinders off, uh, unlike uh, Pascal Ackerman. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you know, the, the opportunity came to, uh, to retire from racing and, and join this, um, the soft ride bicycle company that I'd been racing on for the, for a couple of years. And it really intrigued me what, what they were doing with soft ride and sort of breaking the mold around how bicycles were made. And it just, it just seemed like the right time to do it. Um, I had one, one baby and an, another one on the way and, it it just just made sense. I you know I don't know. I, it was it was heartbreaking to stop. That's for sure. But it made sense. And um, what about you, yeah, Phil? Think, when did when did you know? Yeah, for me, I mean, riders like the top riders normally they announce like three or four years before they're going to retire. They say, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to. I think Hino retired at 32 or 33. Um, you know, but for me, I I think I just basically took a year by year. I was I was really enjoying what I was doing, and I was still getting results. Um, but then, as I got into you know my mid thirties, I was always the last person at the breakfast table. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I was struggling, you know. There's new faces coming in, um, you know, riders coming into the peloton, which I you know I had never heard of. I mean, it was i think a bit different now you've got the under 23s and some of there's a filtering of then coming into the uh doing the same races um as the elites uh but back then it was there was uh you'd never see the riders before they arrived in the pro peloton and um and yeah it was there were very few riders of my generation left by the time i retired um and yeah, it wasn't that I didn't have younger friends in the in the uh, peloton, but um, you know those guys I came through the brat pack of the um, you know seventy nine, uh, eighty, eighty one uh, years. Um, They'll be coming few and few. And I think when I was when I retired, I think I was the second oldest rider in the peloton, and I was thirty six. So mm, wow. yeah, you look at the you look at the age now; they're getting up towards forty. I remember when Yves Zudemelk, um, you know, he, he won the world championships. He was 35, 36, I think. And Chris he was, Horner. That was extraordinary. Chris Horner won the Vuelta at 60. Yeah. the FI game when he was three, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, right. Alex, a, a, a number Verde, he's 40 and he's still at the top end, so you can do it. But then at the other end of the scale, we've got all these youngsters, 21, mm. winning the Tour de France in his first attempt. You know, that just didn't happen back in the old days. So it's, it's a very different world now. Yeah, I think there's so much more awareness around training and nutrition and preparation, how, how the guys are, are brought up as they're younger. So that they're ready, you know. Uh, you know, I, I still think twenty twenty one is is too early to rate the race of Tour de France, but maybe I'm still too old school. I don't know, but you know, it, they, um, yeah, it, it, it's just everything is advanced. You know, it, it has been has been brought forward, so that accelerates 
you know, everything, not just athletes careers, but you know, ev everything we do in life. And it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how far that can be pushed. Cause I, I, you know, really do think it's going to be detrimental to, you know, a young writer's career career. I mean, we see that uh, with Egan Bernal this year, you know, last year he was like, you know, what, however, however early is, was he 21 last year? You know, 22, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just amazing. And this year, hmm didn't quite have the spark that he did last year, you know, and yeah. that, that, you know, that, that can come from going way too hard too early in your, in your athletic career. Do you think that's also, oh, yeah. sorry, and, and, where, and, and where is he going to be at age 35? Yeah. Is he going yeah, to be, that's what I was going to say. Still the, the sport a, is he still going to have the dig at the, uh, at the Tour de France? You know, I think the Valverde, you know, the days of, of, um, you know, characters like Valverde, um, you know, are over because if you can't do it young, you know, you just don't see those riders in their, um, you know, reaching their peak in their thirties, other than maybe Richie Port. <laughs> well, then, then there's the case that Pogacar, uh, by the time he's 26, he's probably will have won five tours to France. So he probably doesn't need to go on much longer. Well, they, they better get it done for now because yeah, otherwise they're going to be burned out. You know, but but Alex, I wanted to, to let's go back to that uh, '86 tour. Uh, so there, yeah, your, your your teammate won a stage only a couple of days later as well. That that was a, a fantastic effort. Yeah, um, Davis Finney. Um, in fact, Davis it was Finney. So we had I, I I won the jersey in the morning stage uh, by getting on the break, getting the time bonuses. Uh, you know, Phil's break caught me. And then I, all my job was to do was to keep the break moving so we didn't get caught. So Van der Rodden didn't win yeah. the time bonus at the end. And we ended up staying away, which was great. Uh, Paul Verschura won the stage. I mean, geez. Um, <clears throat> and then that afternoon, we had a time trial, a team time trial, I should say, 60-odd kilometers. And we just completely just screwed that or screwed the pooch, as we might say in uh, – in Canada, I don't know if you say that in, in Australia. Yeah, we say that. Um, so, you know, that was just like the, 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 the best and the worst day of my life right there. And then the next day, Davis gets in the break of like 20-odd guys, Davis Finney, my, my teammate. Yeah. And, and he's, you know, working through, going through the line, and he's thinking they're sprinting for second place because I think I, he thought a Colombian guy had got away. Um uh, but it turned out that Colombian guy had punctured and they'd passed him and he didn't realize that. Of course, there's no radios. So Davis was sprinting, thinking he's sprinting, uh, sprinting for second. And he actually throws, does the bike throw at the line, wins the sprint, thinking, ah, oh, second. But in fact, he won the stage. I mean, yeah. just like another like crazy <laughs> situation. But the other question I was going to ask is because that was a, a, the amazing tour. I'll get you both to comment on this, but uh, of, of the duel between the teammates, you know, and, and Greg mm -hmm. Lamont. Now, you guys, what are your memories of that? Because I can remember Greg Lamont being so stressed because – whereas he you know it said personally he was going to ride for him but he never did and he never really gave it up there, until really the last day there's a great espn 30 for 30 doco on that called slaying the badger it's brilliant i've seen it yeah and I, I i never saw that part of the race yeah right <laughs> <laughs> i was not there yeah I, when those guys were going head to head and, and you know just you know hitting each other i i never saw that i was just hanging on for dear life at the back yeah, <laughs> so phil yeah. maybe phil saw some of that 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I was a friend of Greg, but he, he never really opened up to me. I think he was, I mean, I guess I was, you know, a quasi contender as well. So he didn't uh, speak to me too much about what was going on uh, within his ranks. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously I've read a lot about it since. And yeah, um, um, Bernard certainly gave uh, Greg uh, a really hard time. Uh, that year and uh, yeah not not the best of uh, teammates but um, yeah I guess his director I think it was Cyril Gimard you know wanted to uh, keep them sharp keep on their edge and and um, yeah you know <clears throat> it's always good to have a B plan but um, when it's A and B um, battling for the same spot right up into the uh, well into the finish I think it was a time trial or something pre the uh, penultimate stage yeah but, yeah it was um it was, um, yeah, it was exciting to watch. And, uh, you know, the, the French, everybody loved it. But, um, yeah, Greg, oh, he would have, uh, wouldn't have slept much those, those uh, three weeks. Um, Alex, I want to ask you about current cycling. Um, there's some news that broke today with EF and Jonathan Vorders saying that, you know, they should stop the Giro on the yeah. next rest day. Uh, are you surprised that the Giro's even continuing at this point with all the COVID situation? Yeah, I am actually, uh, you know, as a race organizer myself, I can't imagine what RCS is going through and just looking to see, looking at what Wadi was saying about the situation, about how the race hotels are organized and there's, you know, okay, there's more than one team in hotel, fine, but there's the public is staying there as well uh, in some of these hotels. And then the next hotel, they're staying with different teams. Mm. And, you know, it's just not structured like it, like ASO has structured it. So, yeah, in typical Italian fashion, they're kind of a little bit laissez-faire. Eh, maybe let's yeah, – don't worry. It'll work. It'll work. You know, well, it's good. Mm. Um, but, you know, if if you're – I mean, just watching the news every day, the COVID cases are going up in France, in Italy, you know, and they're, you know, having to, you know, put in stronger lockdowns. If they don't get a handle of the on the bubble situation and get stricter with that – I don't think the race is going to keep going. I think if if they get if they can control the race hotel situation and the and from you know at the from the finish of the race to the bus and create these corridors for the riders not to interact with fans, but if they don't change that, it's not going to last. Mm. Yeah. What do you reckon, Phil? Oh, look, I'm surprised there's any events this year. To tell you the truth, I mean, geez, how the Tour de France dodged that bullet. And since then, yeah. the numbers have just skyrocketed in France and uh, Italy. Um, yeah, I think it's day by day. I can't see them going uh, another week, you know, which is which is disappointing because it's a huge event and, uh, you know, the efforts that, that everybody's putting in, uh, the organisers, the teams, you know, it's the fans down. But, yeah, I mean, it's just one of those years, I think, where everybody just wants to forget. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I can't see it. I can't see it going another week. But I mean, I was saying that at the Tour de France, I was saying, "Oh, there's no way this is going to finish. There's no way." But um, yeah, they got through, and you know, yeah. there's only uh, very few positive cases. And um, yeah, but now we see teams starting to drop, and uh, you know, the occasional. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, day by day. I think the next two or three days really are going to be a telling because they've done all this new testing. 
And if they can get through till the rest day and no more positives, then it, it, it very well could go most of the way. But I don't think that's going to happen because uh, I think, with the, you know, there's just all those police. I know it was the police with the, the e-bike race, but so many of them have caught it. I will be staggered if there are, are quite a few positives come out over the next couple of days. Yeah, it's, but, it's, it's definitely it's definitely a tricky situation. But I do I do have a Greg Lamont story I should tell you. Please share. It, it, it's a, it's a story I, you know that that I'm able to share. Some of the stories from Greg Lamont you're not allowed to share because you know he was kind of a crazy party animal. But in 1979, I went to Junior Worlds in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and I was a pursuiter. That was really my target event, individual pursuit, 3K as a junior. And you know I thought I was pretty hot. Um, and I had a I had an aero bike, a Marinoni with an oval down tube. That was that was aero back then. And I worked my way up through the uh, qualification round. And then I was up in the quarterfinals against Greg Lamond, this American guy. And ah, oh, all right, let's let's give it a shot. So, you know, gun goes. I'm on my pace every lap, every lap. Um, and Jocelyn Lovell was was our, our mechanic, but he was also <laughs> our, our kind of mentor. Superstar. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, yeah. Anyway, Jocelyn was probably the world's best cyclist ever, you know, if he'd ever have been given the chance. But anyway, uh, it, you know, and in, in those days in the pursuit, I don't know if they still have it, but there's a red light and a green light for the for one side or the other. As soon as you your 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 wheel hit the tape, your light color went on. Every lap, the lights were going on at the same time. Tick, 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 tick. I was just like I tried to look across the track, but I couldn't see through all the fans. Anyway, and it, it was like every lap we were like neck and neck and we were just digging harder and harder and harder. And at the end, he beat me. I mean, the, the lights went on at the same time. I didn't know who had won, literally. And he ended up beating me. And that was the first time that I couldn't, when I got off my bike and I, Jocelyn had to catch me and undo my toe straps for me. And I, and I got off my bike, I couldn't stand. And he had pushed me so hard. I went so deep in those three kilometers. Uh, yeah. And then so, in 1982 at the course classic where there was a criterium on the, um, on the, on the wharf in, in San Francisco, I got away with him, uh, in, in the criterium and beat him in the sprint and got my vengeance back. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I am seeing a lot of similarities, Alex, between you and Ify, because if he's told me so many stories of some great bike riders that he's just been nutted by, and there's always a story in there, John. Yep. Oh, well, Devlamic. You know, I, I, I told my Devlamic beat me on stage in the Tour of Swiss. This was in 81. And, uh, and I said to the sports director, I said, you didn't have the 12 on. I could have won him but I had the 12 on. And he said, ah, you don't beat Devlamic. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, I beat uh, Devlamic and Sean Kelly in the, in the bunch kick. For, for fourth place in, in Dortmund, but anyway, I got my revenge like you. You got, yeah. you know, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah it comes around. Absolutely. Hey, Alex, right. Alex, if you've seen a few of these episodes, you know that we ask a lot of uh, former pros. You know, what what do you think was the key to the success in your career? What are the takeaways from your story, mate? Uh, well, for me, um, I think it was it was uh, Jim Arkowitz believing in me. And, and I, you know, staying on the 7-Eleven team for eight years was a blessing. Like Oach believed in me and well, a lot of other guys on the team 
And, you know, it was such an amazing group of guys. Uh, we still have reunions every five years. I mean, it was a special, a special group. And I felt, still feel, you know, to have been, you know, so fortunate to have been part of that group and to have the, the Oach and, and the group have that confidence in me. Well, after your reunion, do you all, do you all go out for Slurpees? <laughs> Sorry, mate. It's, it's yeah, no. yeah, no. no. Yeah. In fact, you know, even with 7 Eleven jerseys on, we'd go into a 7 Eleven and no one would know who we were. The employees had no really? idea that they sponsored the cycling team and there was no Did free. Did you get any 7 Eleven perks? Nothing. No, no. Oh, that's disappointing. What, we did get a free set of golf clubs. Oh, that's all right. Set of sticks. Seven Eleven on the bag, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what about what about you, Phil? What do you reckon the the takeaways for you were? Like, you know, people in COVID, they need a bit of motivation. Come on, Phil, let's get them up out of the seat. Let's fire them up. <laughs> well, I mean, I still love racing my bike, and I think that's what got me—not uh, racing, but riding the bike—and I think that's what got me up each morning was just the passion for two wheels and getting out there, you know. I mean, I felt very fortunate. You know, I was being paid for what I was loving to do. Um, yeah, you know, and, yeah, never to never to give up, you know, keep those goals in, in, in the back of your mind. And, um, yeah, you're always going to have some tough, some tough times. I had some particularly tough uh, moments through my career. Um, sometimes it was personal, sometimes it was health. You know, there's different different reasons for those things. But yeah, you just um, yeah, get just drive forward and um, yeah, set a goal and 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 don't lose focus. Yeah, good stuff, mate. Now, if you got anything before we uh, let the guys go, yeah, just uh, I'm, I'm shame I, I didn't get to meet you in '81, Alex. It was my last year, and I was. I was living in Kanaka down by the beach because uh, of my, my wife and ki and kids with me that year. But normally I lived in in in, uh, in Ghent and Rosa de Snurk from the famous uh, de Snurk family who had uh, Plume Van Kerr. I used to always live at her house. I remember one time staying there after I'd stopped racing. I was there for a bike show or something, and Eric Hyden, your teammate, was staying with Rosa. And uh, I had an afternoon and evening with Eric listening to his stories. And what a fascinating guy he was. Amazing. Yeah, he was uh, great to have as a teammate and then later as the doctor of the team. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the guy was just an absolute specimen. Like you rode behind him and it was like riding behind a truck. You know, it was just like his quads are like this, still this big, and you know, his torso. And you know, he, I could not believe he was able to get up the mountains uh, in in that Tour de France. He ended up crashing in the Tour de France that year, uh, hitting his head uh, on the on That's a right. descent. It was in the Pyrenees, I think. And uh, Max Testa, our doctor, you know, leaned out of the car as you know, as they, when they finally caught up to him and started asking him questions, he had no idea where he was, wh when he was born. You know all those things, so they just stopped him right there, took his number off, put him in the car. Yeah. So yeah. That, that was a that was a tough deal for Eric. Um, an amazing guy. He was the world's best ever skater. You know, with so Speed many gold skater, medals, gold medals like Placid yeah. Olympics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Amazing, unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Well, but yeah, no, like like you, Phil. I still love riding my bike, uh, and I think a lot of I always look back on that. You know, and there's guys that got into the sport for the wrong reasons. I think because they thought they were going to make a lot of money. Uh, and, and when they retired, they stopped, they stopped riding. 
And mm. I just could not imagine my life without riding my bike. You have to ask my wife about that. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it, it is truly part of me. And I, I you know, I, I spend time, you know, volunteering with the, the local cycling club, helping, you know, coach our, our young kids. Uh, and it's, it's, I just get so much out of seeing that spark and those young riders, you know, getting excited ab about cycling. Um, and, 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 and I get to do it with them, which is so much fun. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you should be, mate. You should be proud, and maybe you'll see him, you know, in the uh, in the big league in a, in a few years. How would it be? Yeah, you know, that's seeing, that's not the ultimate uh, yeah, goal, it, you know, because I, it's no, so no, but, uh, you and I know it's so hard to get to that level and to stay at that level. But yeah, there's been a few kids that have knocked on the door at uh, you know national events and national teams. So it's 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 good, and we have we have actually having more success with with uh, women for area making it to the national uh track team and going to olympics and and worlds uh on the track and that that's been you know fulfilling as well of course because that track is where i started hey awesome well it's been an unbelievable chat guys i've really enjoyed it and uh thanks again for coming on the show and and thanks for really dying up the tech side of things alex it's always a big relief when someone's got good <laughs> wi-fi good lighting good audio phil your wi-fi is not too bad but you make up for it with good content mate <laughs> great stuff thanks a lot fellas really appreciate it all right great no to be worries, dan good to see you, alex dan we'll see you mate so that was Alex Stadia and Phil Anderson. Now, if he, I kept the tape rolling and uh, we couldn't stop talking. So this is the last little bit of that interview. Right. Thanks, fellas. That was awesome. Work on that well, accent. I'll, I'll Work on that accent there, Alex. <laughs> I, I'll give you one last, one last uh, takeaway. Yep. There was movement at the station. The word had got around. The cult from Old Regat had got away, and it was worth a thousand pound. <laughs> Not bad, not bad. Not bad. <laughs> not bad at all. I'd uh, written him a letter, which I had for want of better knowledge, sent to where I met him down the Lachlan years ago. He was shearing when I knew him, so I sent a letter to him, just on spec, addressed as follows, Clancy of the Overflow. There you go. There he is. <laughs> <laughs> very happy with that, John. Well done, mate. And a, and a, and a shout out to my mum in Lithgow. Okay. Ah, that's right. Yeah, your mum's up in Lithgow, isn't she? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. How did that come about? Uh, well, my dad passed away from a heart attack in 83, right before I went to the Olympics, which was really unfortunate. Um, so my mum found some solace in cycling because she had grown up cycling in the UK. So in Vancouver, where she was, we were living. And then um, she went to the Masters World Games in St. Johan, Austria every year with a Masters group from Vancouver. And met yep. an Australian, Clive Lang, and um, then they ended up. She ended up moving to Lithgow. Get got oh, married in a sheep shed years later. Oh, fantastic! Oh, and a real Aussie connection there. And actually, was very instrumental in Mark Renshaw's young cycling career. Oh wow, that's, that's awesome! Great, great yarn, great yarn. Okay, so yeah, we'll, we'll definitely we'll we'll that Australian connection somewhere. You know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Oh, that's great. Love it. Love it. All right. All right. Thanks again, boys. Yeah, we'll, uh, okay, boys. Speak sure. to you again soon. Okay, yeah, mate. Good on you. See you. Okay, Cheers, bye. Bye now. There you have it. There's the interview with Alex. Jizzy speaks well, Ify. I thought uh, he had some great little insights there. 
Yeah, no, obviously a great young man and a fantastic career. And I, we said earlier, make sure you Google up that Rafa uh, mm. um, when they visited him. It's, it's a wonderful uh, uh, little doco. Um, yeah, so, and it's great always to have Phil on. You know, what, what a superstar. Before we go, um, I paid out on Sunweb. Remember I said that video they did was a bit too dark when Bling ran second? Yeah. Now they've bounced back, Johnny. They have bounced back with a vengeance. I don't know if the media guys are watching the detour, but they've released another video yesterday I saw on Twitter, and it's a little bit more jovial. Uh, they're having a bit more fun in the team. Let's have a look. It's hard not to stop moving, huh? Yeah. This is so ridiculous. My time loves it. He always asks me about Schlager, uh, blast music. I cannot say I hate it because then Nico will kill me, I think. Oh, no, you have your opinion. It's his religion music. almost, his music. The blast music? Yeah, you liked it, huh? <laughs> you can make another video about that. Yeah, about, uh, about time. This is also what he listens to all the time. Yeah, this is this is nice. This is nice. There you go, bit of schlager. That's that's the equivalent to Johnny Farnham, I think, in uh, Holland. But they love it, the Dutchies. Like they love that real, that 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 like the cross music where you scull and stuff. But good it's on like the, What's the, what's the uh, international uh, film uh, music festival? The song festival? What's which what is it? The Euro, Eurovision. Eurovision. It's all, it's all Eurovision type stuff. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I, I like it. Like whenever they give people insights with cyclists, you know, a bit of their personality, having a bit of a laugh, showing their different tastes in music. I mean, it's all good stuff. Uh, all right, Johnny, predictions. Who's going to win stage number 13 of the Giro? Well, I, I hate to uh, just sound like a broken record, but it looks like a sprint stage to me. And if that's the case... Uh, mm. The Demar's Demar, good number number five, mate. The punters are not agreeing with you, John. Demar yeah. is fifth in the market. Peter Sagan's the favourite, three dollars twenty-five. Ballerini nine dollars. Ulysses ten dollars. Ben Swift eleven. But that is actually pretty surprising, isn't it? Like Demar, yeah. he's the quickest guy in the race. He can climb. He's won Milan San Remo fourteen dollars. That's um, that is actually pretty juicy. I've actually yeah. got to pay that. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, there's two Cat 4s uh, towards the end of the yeah. stage. It's a 192K yeah. stage, and the last one comes at 176K to go. So it's going to be on for young and old over those yeah. last two climbs. And if a break yeah. gets away, then that blows your bets. But um, yeah. So you're going to go with Demar? Yep. All right. Well, we'll have to stay tuned. Uh, anything you want to add before we go, mate? No, no, loved uh, loved the show and uh, um, the footy tonight will be. Uh, uh, we have to go to the Tigers, I guess. You know, being Victorian, but uh, uh, they could have their work cut out for them. I think. Yep. 
All right, well, uh, stay tuned again to the detour tomorrow night. Uh, and no doubt, John will line up a pretty special guest. Stay tuned for that.